Uh, I'm Matt Hurls. I'm uh, head of human genetics at the Sanger Institute, which is uh, located next to EBI uh, in Hinkston. Uh, and uh, my research group focuses on children with severe developmental disorders and trying to understand the genetic causes of those. Uh, and if I was uh, to, to leave you with a few teasers, I would say, um, although humans are a very young species, which means our DNA is actually really quite similar to one another, actually we all have different amounts of DNA in our cells because one of the ways in which our DNA differs from one person to another is that there are chunks of DNA that are gained and lost in all of us. Um, but may, they may not hit genes because they only account for a small portion, but that's uh, true. Uh, the, the second thing is that our DNA is very faithfully copied from one generation to the next, but every child, everyone in this room, has 70 or so new mutations that neither of their parents had in their DNA because DNA isn't perfectly copied. Uh, and most of those new mutations come from the dad, not from the mum. Uh, another thing I'd say is that there are, genetics plays a role in disease. Um, there are fundamentally two different types of diseases where, where genetics plays a role. There are pretty common diseases where the genetic contribution comes in the form of thousands of genetic variants that each have a very subtle effect on your disease risk. And there are very rare genetic diseases where one particular variant in one particularly important part of your DNA uh, is sufficient to cause the disease. Now, these are individually rare, but because there's so many of them, they're collectively quite common. So um, of the order of uh, one in 16 of us will have one of these rare diseases. Um, and uh, the other thing uh, is interesting, if you have two siblings, you are not equally related to both of them. You will be more closely related to one of them than the other. <laughs> you can keep... Now I can see everybody trying to work out which of their siblings they're, yeah. they're more closely related to. Stuart. Uh, my name's Stuart Ritchie. I'm a, uh, a psychologist, actually. I don't know really why I'm sitting here, but I'm, um, I'm a lecturer at King's College uh, London, and I'm interested in uh, how genetics relates to our psychological uh, traits. And it's um, a lot of scientists over the years have, have, have made fools of themselves by saying things like, we're on the verge of really exciting breakthroughs in my topic. You know, it's, we're, we're, we're about to make really exciting uh, uh, discoveries. Um, and, you know, it turns out that they, they fail to replicate or they, they, don't, uh, they don't work out or, they, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a dead end. Um, having said that, we are on the verge <laughs> of uh, very exciting uh, 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 discoveries. I think we've known for a very long time that psychological traits, by which I mean things like uh, uh, how you do on IQ tests, uh, your personality, uh, how, you, you know, how you'll differ. Some people are more uh, uh, outgoing than others. Some people are more interested in ideas. Some people are more uh, 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 agreeable than others and so on. Uh, these are related to differences in DNA between people, differences in, in their genetics. Doesn't mean that the environment doesn't play a role in these, and it absolutely does. But uh, uh, we, we, we've known this for a long time from looking at uh, family studies, like twin studies and so on. We've known that these traits are heritable to some degree. So differences between people are explained by genes. But the new exciting stuff is that now we're able to have large samples of people with lots and lots of uh, uh, um, uh, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of people in samples. Um, we're able to find the actual parts of the DNA, the, the DNA differences, the variants that some people have and others don't that relate to being higher on, uh, on some particular trait or lower uh, than others. And we're at the point now where we can actually start to make predictions just from a DNA test, they're still very noisy. Uh, uh, they're still they're not they're not perfect by any means, 
But um, we're starting to get to the point where we can make predictions on the basis of DNA as to where someone will come in the distribution of things like uh, uh, personality or intelligence uh, or even psychiatric traits uh, like depression or anxiety <coughs> and so on as well. So um, I'm sure that's not at all controversial and there won't be any issues with, uh, with, with that at all. <laughs> no, as you can see, some very boring topics uh, in front of you. So, um, as I said, I, I want the questions to come from you guys, but I know from experience that this takes a little bit of digesting. So what I want to do, you to do is turn and talk to your neighbours. If you come as a couple or a trio or what have you, uh, try to go the other way uh, so you're talking to someone new. Um, and uh, talk about what genetics means to you and what questions you want to ask uh, these great scientists. So over to you. You've got two, three minutes to chat amongst yourselves. Okay. All right, let's, uh, I, that, that sounds brilliant. In fact, it sounds like we don't even need to be here. Uh, you can all just talk amongst yourselves for the next bit. So hopefully that has generated some ideas. And literally it's now over to you. Pop your hands up. I will come and bring the microphone to you. We have a starter. This is a question. I think it was for Stuart, is it? Um, well, anyone hopefully could contribute to this one. So you mentioned that genetics, we have some evidence now that genetics gives you at least predispositions to certain character traits. And you talked about some that are perhaps a little bit benign, like IQ tests, you know, congratulations, someone has a good IQ test, very good. Some that are a bit more worrisome, like depression. What about things like propensity to criminality? Are we going to be in a situation where we find that actually some people are predisposed to doing things that are unacceptable and... Therefore, when they get hauled up in front of court, are they going to submit a genetics test and say, sorry, Gov, it wasn't my fault? A nice, easy question to start off with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so uh, the, the, first thing is, the first thing to say is that we have lots of, there are lots of predictors of whether people will uh, 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 you know, transgress the legal, you know, uh, the, the, the laws of society and, and things like, you know, growing up in poverty and, and uh, uh, getting, a, getting a, a brain injury, and there's all sorts of other things that predict that, but they don't necessarily determine it, right? And, 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 and it's the same with genetics, right? These are only ever sort of probabilistic. And so if, if, if we're ever gonna make a prediction and, ab about this, and I don't think that, I've never seen a, so what we call these uh, studies where you try and um, link genes to particular behaviors, genome-wide association studies they're called. So I've never seen a genome-wide association study for anything like criminality. Has anyone seen anything like that? I don't think I've... I, I, I think the Danes might have done one, actually. Really? Right, right, right. I wouldn't be surprised mm. if, if, it was, if it was from... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Scandinavian countries have these huge cohorts of, of people. Um, uh, but, yeah, it, all, all it would mean would be that there would be a, 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 a probabilistic um, thing that you could say. You couldn't say this person has, has the, you know, the genes for criminality or something like that. You would say this person has a slightly elevated risk of um, reacting badly when someone... I don't know. I don't know. It depends on what, the, what the, um, the, the phenotype is that you're measuring, reacting badly when someone shouts abuse at them in the street or something. You know, these are things that get into people into fights and so on. Um, and so there are, w there are always going to be ways of, of, of dealing with that. I think the first thing to kind of, um, the first thing that we should say to sort of diffuse the worries about this kind of issue is that even if something is genetic, right, and we know that all human behaviors are genetic. So if you do twin studies of criminality, totally you get heritability of that. 
But just because something's genetic doesn't mean we can't change it with the environment. Myopia, i.e. the fact that I can now no longer see you at all, uh, uh, is, 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 is strongly heritable, right? If you do a twin study, you find loads of, of, uh, of, uh, of heritability for myopia. But we can cure it instantly, and now I can see you, now I can see you again, because we have something in society which we can, we can deal with that instantly. Now, we don't necessarily have the equivalent of a pair of glasses for something like you know, IQ or, or, or some of the other traits that you mentioned, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we couldn't have something that, that, that could change it. We have, there are lots of, other, lots of other traits. I mean, look at height, for instance. Height is extremely heritable, but we know that if you malnourish someone, they'll, uh, the, 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 that will be an environmental effect on their, on their, on their height. And so uh, uh, one shouldn't get into too much, um, you know, if, if someone said, well, my genes, my genes made, me, made me do it in a court, like you, like you were suggesting, um, that, would be a, that would be far too simplistic uh, an answer for any judge who knew about genetics to, uh, to, to accept, I would say. I wonder how many judges we have. Uh, that know about genetics. Um, next question, uh, just behind. It's actually a question from him, but he's too shy to ask. <laughs> um, so he was thinking, you mentioned that uh, you almost close to figuring out which mutations might be causing depression or IQ. He's more interested in IQ. Um, so he's, if you figure out what mutation it is, say, for a parent, is it possible to add or change that mutation so that the kids will be of higher IQ? Or in my case, I want to ask about depression. Is it possible to, ch if it is going to be a hereditary one, is it possible to change that? Well, I'll tell you the two, I mean, I'll, I'll briefly yeah. and then I'll hand over. The, the two ways people are talking about it for, for this, right? And, and, and I'm just, at the moment, I'm just stating like the scientific possibility. I'm not stating my opinion about whether this should be used because there should be a huge ethical debate about these technologies, right? But the two, the two things, so purely scientific, I'm trying to be uh, yeah, purely scientific about it. The, the two uh, technologies that people are talking about, number one would be uh, 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 CRISPR, is what you're talking about. So you would go in and change the, the, the mutation. That's probably uh, uh, quite, quite far off, I would, I would imagine. I mean, I'd like mm. to hear your uh, opinion on this, but um, I think that's probably quite far off, especially given that it's not like there is a gene that is related to intelligence or anything. It's, it's many tens of thousands. These are what we call highly polygenic traits. There are many tens of thousands of genetic variants that are related to these conditions. And so uh, um, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to, to, to go in and actually, and actually change these. But the second way that people talk about that might be more uh, plausible, it's not, I think, technically possible right now, but it's, but it's on the verge of being technically possible, and so we should probably be having a debate about this, uh, is, is embryo selection, right? It's producing, uh, you know, in an IVF scenario, 10 embryos, then rating them on the, their score. for. I mean, we already do this for rare diseases, right? We, we, we do embryo assessing. But for these polygenic conditions uh, or polygenic traits like height or IQ or depression, uh, whatever, um, we could potentially nudge nature in a particular direction and, 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 and choose the, the embryo that had the, the, the highest. But again, it's just probabilistic, right? So it's not like we, we would be 100% sure that that would be an Einstein baby, right? It's just, it's just a, a probabilistic thing. But those are the two ways that we would... That, that it would be possible to do it. So, Matt, you've thought about this. Um, do you have any comments? And it goes to the fact that your siblings are not, you're not equally related to your siblings. So, Matt. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, following up on, on that kind of point, those, those two technologies relate to those two types of diseases. If you've got a disease that's only caused by one variant, that CRISPR approach yeah. is good for kind of, is potentially good for going in. It's very hard to engineer a thousand different places and get what you want. 
Um, so where, where if it's a trait like depression, which is much more one of these ones, which is affected by thousands, then, then the only thing that you, you could possibly do is this selection. But given that you are, you know, with your partner, you're only exploring a limited amount of that range of possible options. Um, and actually, your best bet is actually controlling the environment. Or controlling the partner. Genetic testing. So before we... Uh, well, Anne, have a, have a go. Well, I wanted to, to, to add a little com complexity, but it's a simple complexity to this argument, and that is that our, each of our genes doesn't do just one thing. And sometimes a gene will do one thing in one place and something slightly different in something else. And if you were to play around with it, the chances are that you might do something, you might improve it in one place, but you could do something worse in, the other, in another place. And so these things are not quite as, as simple as, 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 as one make, makes out. So really understanding how these genes are doing different things in different places, perhaps by controlling the amount of them that's being expressed, or the, or the uh, type, the precise type of sequence that's being expressed from each of these genes becomes very, very important if one really wants to think about using gene therapies to try and, to try and make improvements. And I think, I think I would like to add one thing here and just let you know about how the UK thinks about regulating this, because probably everybody in the audience has listened to that and immediately says to themselves, oh, that's interesting. Should we, shouldn't we do this? Should we do this? Who chooses, the parents? What's allowed? And actually in the UK, there was a very good piece of uh, legislation in the 90s that set up um, the Human Fertilization and Embryo Authority. It regulates IVF clinics, basically, but it also regulates this sort of work. And the parliament has, in the law, said a number of things are illegal. You're not allowed to make for example, you're not allowed to do reproductive cloning. You're not allowed to take a cell from a human and make a whole new human from that one cell. It's possible to do that in mice. Um, you're not allowed to do it in humans. You're not allowed to even consider it. But they put a big kind of box of things where they're not sure about what's allowed or what's not allowed. And now it's going to sound a little bit like a beginning of a joke because you have a rabbi and a bishop and four lay people and whatever, and they take evidence and they listen and they argue, and the scientists come and say, we think, or the clinicians mainly, the clinicians come and say, we think this is a good idea to do because this is a very bad disease, and if we do this, we think for these parents it's going to improve their children, for example. And this group of people think about this very hard. They also have uh, lay people, and they do surveys to do this, and eventually they say, yes, that's okay to do, or no, that's not. The recent thing the, they did, which was very complicated, was to approve the idea of mitochondrial donation. This is where there's a kind of a genome that's only passed down from the mother's line, the mitochondria, and they agreed that there can be a procedure where a healthy, there's families where we know the mitochondria is damaged, and we know those families often have bad neurological diseases. And so they allowed a procedure where a healthy woman's mitochondria, in fact, the entire egg, but without the donor's DNA, rest of their DNA, is used as the egg, and the, the woman who has faulty mitochondria's DNA is placed into the fertilized... I'm, I'm looking at Matt because I actually don't know the precise details of the technique, but basically you end up with this, this healthy donor 
giving their mitochondria. Now, that was a really complicated ethical question in some sense, and the Daily Mail described it as three parent babies. That sounds a lot scarier than it is. But they debated it. They actually decided that they had to change the law to do this because they decided it was outside of the box. So they went through the whole thing in Parliament and the whole thing in the House of Lords, and then it was agreed. So all of these sorts of things, which are now possibilities, we have a process to decide as a society about whether we should do it or not. And it is an interesting question about where we draw the line about what we are allowed to do. So more questions. Okay, look, lots of hands. Let's go over here. How does CRISPR work? So um, um, CRISPR, uh, CRISPR, or CRISPR-Cas9, as it's called, is a mechanism, um, a process that has evolved from understanding um, the enzyme, uh, enzyme, um, enzymology in bacteria. So this is a, um, um, Cas9 is an enzyme that will, um, let me start, <laughs> so try and think. So you, so, so it allows you to do, to target a piece of genetic material and change it by cutting it and repairing it or cutting it and putting another piece of DNA in there. And it does that by, um, you take a piece of, actually a small piece of RNA, which is sort of like DNA, and it, it has a, um, um, it's complementary to the region that you're interested in targeting. And it carries, it, it targets the enzyme that cuts to that piece of DNA, and then it cuts it. And then your, inher your inherent repair machinery within the cell will um, um, either replace a piece of DNA in there or repair a piece of DNA in there. Um, but it's a very, the advantage of it is that it's highly targeted and highly specific. Um, there have been actually mechanisms around for quite a long time to target um, and alter pieces of DNA. Um, this one is um, very, very, very faithful, actually, and very robust, and it uses a lot of the, the, hosts, the host cell's own machinery to, to, to do the process, and all it needs is a, a piece of targeted um, nucleic acid RNA and this Cas9 enzyme that does, the, that does the cleavage. And I think we should talk about, so there's two different things. Research scientists are just, it's the coolest thing in town. Yeah, I do it all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's for good reason. Um, and the reason why is because with that RNA, you can literally order up in a computer any part of the genome. You can say, I want to change this bit, and this bit, and this bit, and this bit. And I can even do it as a, as a kind of unit. And so there's, it's never been easier to edit genomes than now. We can do it on human genomes for research. We could do it on human genomes where we take cells out and we change them and then we put them back into ourselves. So that might fix something, but not change what our children have. It might fix our muscle cells. Is it the it RNA or the, or the enzyme that finds the target? Sorry? Is it the RNA or the enzyme that the homes in on the target? It's the... It's the RNA oh. that, that, that provides the, the target. Um, so uh, what is it that carries the information for what you want, then? Uh. Uh, well, you can, you can play around with it. You can put bits of... Um, you can target two different places uh, and, uh, and whip a piece of DNA out. Um, you can um, 
um, add bits, um, uh, add bits in. Um, so yeah, it depends on how you how you what how you play around with it. With it, so you, with you it. can you can make the RNA to have any sequence that yeah. you want, essentially. Yes. Yes. So you can target it to anywhere that you'd like to. And and also, if you make the RNA just right, when it fixes it, it often fixes it in the way you wanted it fixed. So that's I think your question is is how do you get the specific base pair that you want in, yes. and that is fiddlio, isn't it? Than no, that, that, that's a little bit trickier, yeah. and, and, and but, but sometimes um, for for the kinds of experiments that, that that we're involved in, which is using model organisms to study the function of genes that are important for particular developmental processes or diseases, we we like to to, to break genes actually, and uh, and in those contexts. Um, we can make, we can, we, we sometimes don't mind the exact mutation that we make. We just make a random mutation in the targeted place. But for therapeutic purposes, you absolutely want to get it right, and that's a little bit harder. Okay, let's go for another question. Uh, there were lots of hands up previously. Okay, uh, one at the back there. Swap mics. Can you say something about the junk DNA that isn't genes? Um, presumably techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 allow you to play with it and see if anything happens. Mm. This is definitely for you, Anne. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like the term junk, actually, because I... Um, um, well, I, I suppose there's garbage and there's junk, and garbage is stuff that you throw away and is not useful, and junk is something you put in your attic that might be useful later. That might be one way of thinking about it. So... Um, <coughs> Yeah, we did an experiment once where, I mean, there's a, uh, there's a piece, there's a, there was a very large piece of DNA that was repeated over and over and over and over again. We decide, designed a very sophisticated, difficult experiment to take out this big piece of repetitive DNA. And we took it out, in, in, actually, in a mouse, and nothing happened. And it took six years for this person to do this experiment. It was very, very painful. Um, but in fact, um, um, some of these repetitive sequences are very, very interesting and do have the potential to be functionally relevant. I'll give you one example. So there's a, um, a set of um, repetitive sequences that I mentioned before that look like viruses. They're called endogenous retroviruses. And, and, um, and they're integrated into the genome and they have regulatory sequences that have the potential to activate um, their own they have little genes in them and they have these, these they have re regulatory elements that will turn these little genes on. But they also can turn on the, the genes or the DNA that's next to them that's not part of, their, uh, of, this, of this viral sequence. And when, um, and, and when you, for example, make a tissue like a placenta, so a placenta is a very recently evolved organ. It's a very transient organ, a very important organ that is, is um, important for the uh, nutritional interface between the mother and the, and, and the, and the baby. Um, and mammals have evolved placentas in many, many different ways. And one of the reasons that they've been able to evolve it in different ways is because the placenta uses uh, these regulatory sequences from these little viral repeats to drive the expression of genes that are in the normal in, in, under other circumstances are doing other things, but they've used them, they've co-opted these genes to make a placenta through the regulatory elements that have been found in these, uh, in these repetitive sequences. So that's one example of how DNA that is um, not exactly um, 
coding for protein coding genes within our genomes can actually confer confer a function. Well, Matt's going to come in on this as well. So, so, um, so one of the most common of these uh, repetitive elements, in fact, the most common, is called uh, an allo element, which has a million different copies in the genome. Um, now, almost all of those copies are are dead. They can't make new copies of themselves. But a very small number are still alive, and about one in twenty of us will have a new copy, one of those new mutations that we have, one of those 70 new mutations, turns out to be a new copy of this element that's jumped somewhere else in the genome. And, uh, and a small fraction of the children that we study with severe developmental disorders have their developmental disorder because that copy, that new copy has gone into a, into a gene that's critically important for the development of the brain, for example. Um, and and we, we scanned across, just recently scanned across um, 13,000 children and found four of them where their disorder was caused by one of these new jumpings of, of these elements. Good so, question. So do you want I, to come? Can I just say that, that, that we do? It's not. It's not really as scary as all that because because in fact because in fact the the host cells have evolved yeah. mechanisms to shut down and prevent the movement mm. of these types of elements, and that's where epigenetics comes in. One of the most important things that uh, chemical modifications that to, to DNA um, has evolved to do is to target these particular sequences and shut them off, make them unable to jump around. So the DNA itself doesn't change, but it's chemically modified so that it can't move around. That's great. And just to give you a sense, there's some organisms that um, have really got on top of their internal viruses, the fugu, um, the Japanese puffer fish that you can order. They have managed to sort of pretty much eliminate all of these repeat sequences, whereas your average plant pine has just said, I don't care. Yeah, I don't care how much these viruses have, and I don't know what percentage repeat they are, but it's, it's, it's insane. Yeah, maize, yeah. maize is over 75%. Yeah. It's just packed full of repeats. So there's lots of different amounts of attic junk in different genomes. Next question. Just let's go one below. Um, I have a question about epigenetics. So uh, environmental factors affect the gene expression. And I was wondering what kind of environmental factors would cause um, the expression of like positive genes uh, so we can have more advantageous genes rather than disadvantageous genes? Yeah, I don't know if that's a question strictly about epigenetics, but and what do you, where do you want to go here? And then I'm also going to give this well, one to Stuart. Stuart. I wonder if you could go to Stuart, who really is, thinks about environmental <laughs> no, no, impact yeah. on genes, because your question wasn't really an epigenetic question. It was really about environmental effects yeah. on genes. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the biggest epigenetic effect on the human uh, genome that we measure in our studies is, is smoking, right? That's the That's one right. that like, you can, it, there's an epigenetic test where you can pretty much, my colleague who works on this, says we can pretty much tell who is a smoker and who's not at, pretty much 100% certainty from, from looking at their epigenetics, and it just seems to be something which, I mean, you, you, you Yeah, and, this is, and this is epigenetics in the blood. This is when we, people take bloods, white blood cells, and we look at the epigenetics of those blood cells. Specifically, the methylation of, yeah. the, of the DNA, which there's is one, 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 place, type of one, one place, there's a methylation mark that is associated with smoking. Right, right, yeah. right. And, and so, and so th that, that's the sort of thing that we see there. But in terms of uh, making, uh, in terms of um, environments that might uh, facilitate genetics or, or, or the genetic effect on interesting traits that we want to, we want to uh, uh, improve. There's a finding from the 
sort of uh, behavior genetics literature uh, that's often debated and there's evidence on both sides and, and, and so on. But there's a very interesting finding, which is in some uh, uh, samples at least, people who are from very low socioeconomic backgrounds, so uh, living in, in, in poverty, uh, uh, in, in, in poor areas of towns and so on, uh, whose parents have uh, poor educations and so on. So kids, kids in, in, in that uh, sort of environment, the heritability of their uh, uh, IQ, uh, of their, their performance on an IQ test, um, is actually lower. Um, and, 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 what that, and, so, and so just to say the converse is that people who are born in, into, into rich environments uh, and so on, they have a higher heritability. Genes explain more of the, of the reasons that those people differ in their intelligence. And um, that's been found um, consistently in the United States, but not so much elsewhere. And the interesting thing is that one suggestion for that might be that um, uh, inequality is, is, is higher in the, in the US in, in, in most uh, measures than it is in, say, European countries that have a, a bigger welfare state and, 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 and so on. Um, uh, Australia is another place where it tends not to be found, uh, this, this effect, which is called a, a gene-by-environment interaction on intelligence. And so um, it does, it, it do, that does suggest that, at least under some circumstances, uh, um, Im improving the environment might actually allow people to, in some sense, reach their genetic potential for their intelligence. Uh, uh, because it, it, it stops other, uh, uh, stops negative environments having a having a, a, a detrimental effect on their on their uh, on their intelligence. So there's that sort of gene environment interaction. As I say, there is some debate on that, and the, the, it's it's not as um, it's you know everyone everyone always cites a study from 2003 that found the effect, but there's been kind of inconsistent findings on that ever since. And so we're still trying to work out exactly under which circumstances that appears and for which uh, measurements for which traits. Uh, that appears, but yeah, that's that's the kind of um, most talked about gene by environment interaction. On this kind of um, uh, topic, so 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 one thing that affects our DNA methylation levels is actually the the drugs that we take. So um, so we were doing a study recently to see whether we could use um, epigenetics to investigate whether um, a variant really was causing a particular disease, and what we stumbled across is something that. Um, uh, if you're given sodium valproate, for example, which is an anti-epileptic drug, that can have a major impact on your, your blood method, DNA methylation levels. And that could be one of the reasons why um, that effect of that drug could be one of the reasons why that drug is a dangerous drug to take if you're pregnant, because it can have big impacts on development. That's one kind of interesting observation that, that we don't often think about in terms of the environment is the, the things we actually choose to put inside us. Um, the second is actually one of the most striking things about DNA methylation that I've seen is uh, if you were to give me uh, the DNA of a random person and ask me, can you work out how old they are? Um, the thing that would be most informative would be the DNA methylation. There is a DNA methylation signature of age. Um, uh, and, and I'm somewhat surprised we haven't heard of more of it in the kind of forensic literature because yeah. it's actually really quite predictive. Um, so, and, and, and we don't really understand the biological basis of that at all, but we do know there's a signature of DNA methylation that really correlates well with age. Um, whether it's the cumulative exposure or the nature of aging, we don't really understand it. In some of our cohorts, we've actually shown that the discrepancy between that epigenetic age signature, mm. biological age you might call it, and your chronological age, so just, mm. just how, how old you are. So some people, that's, that's, that's a negative one, and some mm. people that's positive, so some people are um, biologically older than they than they should be chronologically, mm. and some people are biologically younger. So it's like it's like um, someone who's you know uh, twenty years old but has loads of wrinkles, or someone who's seventy and looks really looks really mm. young. Say you know it's that, that that sort of uh, difference. Um, 
we, but, but, but purely at the level of their DNA, um, we, find, uh, we find that that actually predicts mortality. So knowing, knowing uh, what someone's methylation, knowing that they have a, a, a big negative methylation age, mm -hmm. Uh, or whatever you want to call it, methylation... Mm. Methylation it clock. Methylation, it's called, yeah, it's called the methylation clock, mm. and, yeah, it's, yeah. and it's very um, reversible. Predicts mortality, and it's been shown in loads of different studies, yeah. Mm. So it's a, a, it's a kind of replicable result, and my goodness, you know, replicable results are few and far between uh, these days, but that's a, but that's a, that's a, um, a, 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 a robust one, one it yeah. seems. Yeah, yeah. And, but as you say, mm. working out why that is, is, is the next question. Mm. Okay. Got a question here from one of our younger... Audience? So I'm interested in uh, how close you are to understanding certain different disorders such as autism and Asperger's and people on the autistic spectrum because I know that this has uh, puzzled many people for a long time and I'm interested in finding out the recent research into it. Yeah, yeah, so, um, so uh, autism as a diagnostic category is a, is a fairly unusual one because it covers a, a huge spectrum of, of disorder from, from you know, children who, who maybe you know, uh, can barely walk and talk to, to individuals who are really high-functioning in society. Um, and it has a really interesting history in terms of how it's been defined by and, and how it's been used in different places and how the, the diagnostic categories have changed over time. But broadly speaking, what we know currently is one can, from a genetic perspective, split autism into um, autism that comes with other neurodevelopmental problems like intellectual disability or epilepsy. And when we, when we look at that subset uh, of people with autism, they often have one of these um, large damaging, large effect damaging variants. So there's one genetic variant that's having a big effect on them. And if you look at the, the uh, individuals who have autism but don't have those other things, th those other kind of problems, um, they tend not to have one variant that has uh, a big effect. They tend to have actually thousands of variants that have subtle effects. And so one may, may label, so autism covers this what I described at the beginning of these two different types of disease, actually autism covers both of those. It's really unusual in that. In that. Um, and we're just starting to understand now um, those, there's probably thousands of variants that contribute to the majority of autism is just autism. It's not maybe 10% has this additional uh, kind of other features to it. So the majority is this polygenic autism um, where we suspect there's thousands of genetic variants that contribute. But currently we've only really found a small number of them um, and the small number of those uh, genetic variants have given us a f not many clues yet into the biology of the cause. And we do, there are some very interesting work, that actually Stuart probably knows better than I do, about correlations between um, genetic variants that influence autism that may also influence other conditions. So one of the things that's come out recently is that the genetic variants as a, as a whole that, that predispose you to autism also predispose you to higher educational attainment. Um, and that's, uh, that seems to be a fairly r robust observation now that multiple people have shown. Yeah. Do, you, do you want to come in on that? Well, it's unusual. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, um, uh, in, in terms of disorders, so when, when you're, if, if you want to call autism a disorder, I mean, in some cases, some people w would say that, and you've, you've talked yeah. about different levels of, uh, 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 of differences within that. Um, when you're looking at the genetics that are related to educational attainment mm -hmm. and intelligence, Generally, what you find is that those genetic 
variants are also the gen genetic variants that are related to things like um, being slightly healthier, you know, having a lower BMI and uh, having less risk for depression and less risk for anxiety and, uh, and, and so on. But one of the things, one of the disorders, again, if you want to call it that, that, it, that, that the IQ-related uh, genetic variants are positively linked to is, mm. is autism. And that's really, I think that's a really fascinating thing. And, and much more has to be done on, on, mm. on working out uh, how, that, how that works. I mean, we, we had another genome-wide association study for autism just a couple of weeks ago, I think, mm. a, a bigger one. And so we'll be able to find, we'll be able to find uh, 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 some more stuff there. One, one, can I just say one, sure. um, one nice thing about this? People worry about uh, uh, you know, the, the effect that knowing some traits are genetic might have on people. You know, they think it's, it's a controversial, it's always a controversial topic. But a really nice thing about um, our new understanding of genetics is that it pushes us away from old ways of thinking. I mean, in, in the you know, middle of the 20th century and so on, through the 60s and 70s, People blame parents for how kids uh, uh, turned out in, in, in a great extent. Autism, people talked about autism being the, cause, um, being the consequence of uh, refrigerator mothers. They're too cold to, to their kids and their kid, their kid develops, uh, you know, uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, develop good social skills and, and, and so on. We now know that's not the case. We know autism is largely uh, uh, heritable and, and, and so on is not, and is not related to whatever parenting practices you, you choose. So in some, in some sense, even though these things are uh, often very controversial, um, uh, 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 for, for some traits, it's actually um, somewhat liberating to get people away from having to be blamed for uh, the way their kids uh, uh, are. So, so I've got a couple of other things. That, for, for, uh, but but let, let's let but, the but, audience. But, but, but there's a question for the audience as well. So All right, go for it. So, so, so the first thing is just to, to, to follow up when I mentioned there is this subset of autism that is caused by single um, single gene disorders. Um, actually, what we find is that's not specific to autism at all, actually. Those single gene disorders, those same mutations are often seen in children who have intellectual disabilities without any autism whatsoever. And they, they appear to be genetic variants that cause neurodevelopmental disorders in a very broad sense. Um, that, that the second thing is that um, one can measure autistic traits in the general population. And there's a real expert in Cambridge, Simon Baron-Cohen, who, who does this and devised something called an autism quotient. Uh, he devises questions that you can know 20 questions 50 questions you can ask people and it and you can ask of anyone in this room and you'll get a you'll get a value out of that and we're, we're about uh, he's doing a study at the moment where they're asking that of hundreds of thousands of people in uk biobank and i think that could give us a real insight into because that will be far bigger than the biggest study of autism and that could give us a real insight into it and one of the most interesting questions that he does that i me and my wife completely dis differ on is um is, uh, so he had this approach of, of looking at systematizing intelligence and emotional intelligence. And one of the questions about systematizing intelligence, which I found to be entirely bimodal, you either say, of course, or you say, I would never have thought that. And I just want to check this in the pocket. So, so on a show of hands, for people, when they sit on a train, do they think about how the different railway lines meet up? <laughs> I like the binomial. Yeah. So, 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 so I went, of course, my wife went, I could have lived 100 years and never had that thought. Well, I, don't, I don't actually, does the question mean how the tracks merge or what the train map looks like? No, no, like? the train, the train map. Oh, well, then, I'm, then, then, I, then my hand yeah. is up. Okay. Now, I'm ha hanging over here because I realize I have favored that side of the room. So this side of the room, hands up, there's one at the back there. First, there's, a, there's another youngster. Okay. Apart from CRISPR-Cas9, um, wasn't there this other genome editing um, method called zinc finger nucleases? So how do they work? 
Wow. <laughs> so, we, we know I, I, we're I, in Cambridge. I, I can have, I can have a, <laughs> I can that was a great that. question. Um, so, so, that, so that there's been several generations of, uh, as Anne mentioned, of these targeting approaches. Um, there were uh, zinc finger nucleases is, is one, talons is another, and then we've ended up with CRISPR-Cas9. Um, the, the, w the way that zinc fingers work is that you design the proteins to go and bind particular DNA sequences. And the, the problem about that is it's quite hard to design proteins that bind very specifically to DNA sequences. The beauty of Cas9 is it does target using RNA and the inherent kind of uh, hybridization and complementarity of, of RNA and DNA. So you can target in a much more precise and programmable way. Whereas, whereas zinc fingers, you had to kind of take a stab at it and then refine it over time. And maybe you did or maybe you didn't, you know, five years later target that sequence particularly well. Maybe when you targeted that sequence, you also hit 10 other sequences in your DNA. So that's why CRISPR-Cas9 has turned out to be hugely valuable compared to the others, is it's just much more programmable. It's almost as simple as just typing into a computer, say, please send me that RNA. It comes, you can do it. That was an excellent question. I can see you're a budding scientist. There's a question up here. I thought you were never going to make it this far, actually. Um, my question is about ethics. Where do you think the greatest dangers lie in our experiments and developments with genetic modification? What are your great fears? Nicely open. Let's have, have all of us answer. Um, uh, who wants to go first? Why don't you go first, Ewan? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't say that. Um, I think my biggest fear is that we overestimate the importance of DNA, and I say that as somebody as, who's a geneticist. And so we think it's more important than it is. We think it's more important to change and fix and improve and what have you. And we, it's, it's both not true for most things that we do, we get to choose. We, as scientists, we call that the environment, but it's, a lot of that environment is our choice. Um, and in many ways, we should see DNA as a kind of background C that, we, that is different slightly for different people, but not radically different and not something we should improve. So I worry really about society as a whole getting too confident about the importance of DNA uh, uh, as, as something in our lives. I know that's odd to say as a geneticist. So so I, okay, yeah, Matt's frowning a little bit. Okay, but anyway. No. So I think, I mean, as we heard from Ewan earlier on, I mean, we're very fortunate in this country to have the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority that's been around for a long, long time since the early days of in vitro fertilization and, and, um, 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 and uh, dealing with, with reproduction and fertility issues. And I... And I and I worry about places where there isn't that same kind of thoughtful, well-considered, um, expert um, um, assessment of these types of technologies uh, and, and, and environments where, where these kinds of things can be abused. Um, so you worry of the places outside of the UK in some sense? Or that we like, you know, turn into that we stop doing this kind of the, yeah. that kind of. I mean, we won't. We will always. We will always. I think be 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 responsible in this kind of way. But yeah, yeah. Matt. Um, so so 
from, from a human genetics perspective, I worry more about societal impacts rather than particular experiments, I guess, or, or particular applications. So I, I worry about society losing trust in the good that genetics can do and, and that those benefits aren't realized because of that. Um, I worry a bit about um, uh, inequities being introduced whereby people have access to certain technologies and other people don't. Um, I think that already exists in our society. I mean, we can't, we're not in a perfect world mm. there. Um, I worry a bit for you know, applications like um, you know, genetically modified other organisms that might be beneficial to society that we create monopolies that have large commercial control over over those technologies and because of the loss of trust in the, the through those monopolies we don't then take actually things that would have a huge advantage like providing vitamin a to you know countries where you know vitamin vitamin you know there's there's endemic low vitamin a and that has a major impact on uh, on developmental outcomes for example so uh, so I, i'm con i concern more at those societal levels than i am about the um about particular experiments other than I would say the potential for malign use of, of biological warfare. So that's not necessarily a, bi a, a, um, a, uh, a genetic modification thing so much as, as someone, um, you know, the wrong material getting into the wrong hands. Stuart. So I think those, those cover, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I think those are all extremely uh, worrying things, especially the idea, you know, when we've been talking about these, you know, um, at the start of these kind of, you know, the embryo selection stuff and the CRISPR stuff and all that is, is that it would, it, would, it would entrench privilege in society where the people who are interested in doing that and the people who have access to do that are the people who uh, are already uh, at the high end of the spectrum for a lot of these uh, uh, things. Um, although just the contrarian side of me also wants to say that um, th there's, a lot of, there's a lot of kind of ickiness about genetics. It's a bit like nuclear power. So there's at least an argument that people are, you know, people are uh, irrationally afraid of nuclear power, which generally is, is, is very safe. And it would be tragic if we, you know, banned people from accessing, uh, from, from uh, banned countries from, from building new nuclear power plants because they could be really helpful because they're really low emissions. They could be helpful to reduce climate change. And it would be a shame if our kind of general feeling of ickiness about new technologies uh, uh, to do with genetics meant that we didn't realize the potential for a lot of these things. Obviously, we have to make sure that it has all the ethical uh, uh, controls and so on. And that's why the Human Fertilization and Embryo Authority are, are, is such a great thing. Um, uh, but yeah, it would be a shame if, uh, if people were, uh, 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 had a sort of disgust reaction to a lot of these things, which often they do, um, uh, uh, and, and, don't want it, and don't want it to happen, and if that had influence, and stopped us from, you know, th there could be genuine benefits for improving uh, uh, the well-being of people and, and, and lessening the impact of diseases and so on in a lot of these, in a lot of these cases, and it would be a shame if we, if we didn't have that. So that's just my slightly sort of contrarian point on the, on the medical. Great. Um, and I would... The, one of the interesting things about this inequality is um, the UK, the NHS, has recently rolled out genomic testing as standard of care for people with rare disease, and they've done it across the entire population. So some of these questions about equity is not really a genetics thing. It's, it's, it's almost a more generic healthcare thing. How do we think about what society has as a whole as a baseline and what do we let society vary? So from this perspective, some of these questions are not genetic-specific. Uh, uh, they're broad in this, but some, of course, are. And there's been a very persistent hand up over there, and I'm going to go and uh, satisfy this person. Thank you very much. Um, 
I know you're going to get sick of it, but it's a further extension of the whole ethical and moral thing to do it because obviously for a lot of us, it, it is a major issue and it, we fully accept it is a very, very important field of genetics, you know, and we can learn enormous things about it. But the problem is, it's very good, you know, obviously having the um, regulations and things in place now, but inevitably in the future, corporations, etc., these things, it's like cosmetic surgery was developed to help people that had, had disfiguring accidents or illnesses and that are now used because people want bigger boobs or big lips or the nose a different shape. Um, you know, do we worry that eventually it will be taken out of the hands and corporations have a massive effect on science anyway and pharmaceutical industries and everything that as moral as you want to be about it, eventually it gets taken out of your hands and used for immoral purposes. Does that worry you? I mean, again, I don't think here genetics is alone in, you know, the question is, how do we regulate all of this appropriately? And in the UK, it's an act of parliament, it's a law. You go to prison if you break it. So I think it's a reasonable way of going about it, but it's a much bigger question than this one uh, area. I don't know if... I would, I would, I would say, I would say um, I'm, I'm less worried by corporate involvement than I am about monopolies. Specifically, if there's competition, so so if I take, for example, so the, the genetic test that that uh, had the most rapid take up is non-invasive ever is non-invasive prenatal testing for Down syndrome. You might want to just explain that, Matt. So uh, so so if you want to um, do a genetic test for Down syndrome ten years ago, um, you had to take a sample, either what's known as a chorionic villi sampling or amniocentesis. It comes with a one percent miscarriage risk. You have to put a needle essentially into the womb. Um, it was found that actually there's small amounts of the baby's DNA circulating in the, mo the pregnant mother's blood, and you can test that instead. And, and, and pregnant women have their blood taken, you know, quite a lot during pregnancy. So this is not a, and that's what's known as the non-invasive test, is when you go in and you detect uh, the fetal DNA and the mutations that are in the fetal DNA and use that to do a Down syndrome test. Now that, um, there was academic research on that, um, there's, but there was multiple companies in that space and the, the fact that now millions of women have had that test around the world is because those companies competed with one another, they did good tests, and those were rolled out. Now, there was not, it wasn't perfect, but certainly it got to a position of adoption much more rapidly because there were multiple companies competing than had we were doing been dependent purely on national health systems to deliver that. So in, in that regard, that was a, a good thing. I think that same technology can also be used for things like detecting tumours before they... Um, they manifest in any kind of Ill, uh, overt ill health because tumours also uh, shed DNA into, into the blood. And this is kind of known as a liquid biopsy test. It's a very similar technology. Um, and that's also being driven largely by the commercial world. And I suspect we will have, you know, in future years, tests, you know, many years before we would otherwise have done because of that competitive commercial environment. Um, certainly, in terms of the patients that we work on and diagnosing their diseases, their rare diseases, most there's no treatment currently for, the, for that disease. Most of the work that's been done in developing the treatment is in the pharmaceutical industry. And, and my concern is not that the pharmaceutical industry is, is developing drugs. It's just they're not, there's not enough of them developing enough drugs. Many of these conditions, there's nobody working on drugs for them. So I think this, that question can get bigger and bigger. But let's uh, get another question about uh, genetics. Okay, down here. 
I have a, a colleague pointing at another colleague. Thank you very much. Uh, this is more I th probably on your lines, but perhaps for everybody. I, I've had, uh, heard in two recent lectures, one was from, from someone in the psychiatric unit here, uh, Professor Paul Jones, and one from some Robin Murray, mm. that in the area of schizophrenia, I think it's about 12 genes have now been identified, correct me if I'm wrong, associated with it. I, I'm just interested in knowing from identification, where is there some sort of p positive, um, perhaps new treatment or, or whatever? Well, so, uh, yeah, I, um, I'm not sure the number of specific genes. So there's a difference, yeah, between, the difference between, yeah, well, just, there's a difference between the genes and the genetic variants, because you can have genetic variants that are not in genes, as we've, mm. as we've talked about. And so the last schizophrenia uh, genome-wide association study I saw had many hundreds of genetic variants, um, but they might not all have been in genes, so it could be that it's not. Um, yeah, we've, we've got, w psychiatric traits tend to be, tend to be tougher than um, uh, things like, so, so, Education, uh, education and IQ and stuff, we're, we're actually doing pretty well with those in terms of um, understanding, in terms of um, getting predictors that we can get a new sample and predict into it, you know. Uh, uh, so just to illustrate, for, for, for educational attainment, which is what one of the, the big genome-wide association studies recently has, has, has done, we have a, 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 a what's called a polygenic score, which you can take in a new sample of people, an entirely different sample of people, and you can rate them on how many variants they have that are linked to having a uh, a higher or lower educational attainment. And that's been, and what was found in the most recent study, which was published in Nature Genetics last year, was that um, if you split that genetic score into five categories, the people in the highest category had a 50% chance of getting a college degree or university degree, and the people in the lowest category had about a 10% chance. So that's a, that's a decent prediction you can make from, from, from putting people into the categories. We're nowhere near that for psychiatric disorders. So for schizophrenia, um, even though we know schizophrenia has a very, very high heritability, we're not quite as good at predicting, we're not anywhere near as good uh, as the educational stuff at predicting uh, uh, you know, someone's level of symptoms. Um, depression as well, um, even though we've got very large samples on depression, we're really struggling. So there must be other stuff going on that's not the common genetic variants that we measure in these genome-wide association studies. So we're not quite as good at predicting that. But um, another interesting thing that you raised at the end is, is trying to work out uh, 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 from, from our knowledge of what these genes are, from work out, gene, um, work out uh, 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 drugs that might target the proteins that are produced by these genes and, and might be able to do that. We're at a very, very, very early stage of doing that. Um, uh, the, the most recent studies I've seen um, are, are very much sort of uh, just kind of trying to grab information about what proteins relate to which drugs, and they're not, they're, they're, they're not uh, it's not like we're on the edge of, of producing something, unfortunately. Though, though I would say in schizophrenia, for me, there has been one striking thing, which has been the role of microglia in the brain that came out of genetics. So microglia are, are brain cells, but they really are immune cells in the brain. So the, the immune cells in our brain that are at some point thought just about looking after our brain cells and are kind of keeping the viruses away. But it now looks like they, they also actively are involved in trimming and kind of pruning your neurons in the right way. And the genetics of schizophrenia pointed very strikingly to this uh, pruning immune system in schizophrenia. And this had people scratching their head for a bit of a time and said, what on earth is going on? Um, and then they worked out that this synaptic pruning uh, is a big issue. And a lot of that happens in adolescence and in late adolescence, and that also goes to the timing of the onset of schizophrenia. So this is an example where genetics pointed to a piece of biology that people, 
when they first saw it, they said, ah, how does that fit? And now it's slowly being unpicked and we get a better insight into the disease. What I think is harder is this cure aspect. So that is a much harder thing. And in some sense, I'm afraid to say, very often we just have to be lucky. It's like, ah, oh, this is how the disease works, and I know how to change that protein, and off we go, and let's test it. And so there's an awful lot of kind of luck in the process of, of making cures. And that goes to Matt's point about just having more people making more drugs, drugs so that we can be lucky when we come across this. So it's a very long road from understanding to cure, unfortunately. Um, but there, for schizophrenia, there has been, for me, a shift in our understanding uh, of, of the biology of schizophrenia. I hope I got that. Stuart, were you yeah, nodding? That seems inaccurate, yeah. 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 Matt, have I got my compliment story yeah, yeah. right? Good. Ha, thank the Lord. Okay. <laughs> Over to you, sir. Uh, Matt, a question is for you because you confused me a little bit. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> you mentioned about sodium malproic and its effects on the baby. So um, is, I thought it was more of a chemical effect or is it affecting the genetics? If it's affecting the genetics, can we you explain know. how? We don't know. We I mean, don't yeah, know. So, so, so valproic acid is a very dirty drug. It does lots of things. Um, and uh, uh, but it, it, so it's, it's but it's interesting. I think what I said is it could be the mechanism by which it acts. But um, so it, we, it we, is, we certainly we certainly clearly know that uh, that that um, certain classes of anti-epileptic anti drugs do have a uh, or do massively increase the risk of, of developmental disorders of various different kinds. And there are well-established teratogenicity effects. From um, from sodium valproate. Uh, can you can you explain? I so don't know what that, that word that means. That means that the uh, a, 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 um, sodium valproate is a teratogen. That means that it can affect the development of the of the baby um, at some frequency, not a very high frequency, but there is um, um, I think well characterized um, developmental abnormalities that are associated with um, sodium valproate during pregnancy. Remember, you all started off as one fertilized egg, just one cell with just one set of DNA. <laughs> and kind of amazingly, you're now three trillion cells. And a lot of the hard work happens in the first 12 weeks of uh, pregnancy. So, you know, you, you know there's, a, there's an awful lot of stuff that goes from that one cell to us at that very, very early bit. And that's where we see when things go wrong, very often they're going to go wrong then, and they will be um, natural miscarriages, uh, which is what we think is happening. Have I got that correct as well, Matt, roughly? Okay, over here, questions? Um, on that, actually, on early pregnancies, um, is it true that... Um, certain genetic disorders can cause um, miscarriages like trisomy 16 and 18, and they cause it at random without any reason, or can it be because of certain external factors like, um, I don't know, exposure to toxins or diet or lifestyle? So the, the major, so, so those kinds of disorders where you have extra copies of chromosomes, the major effect is mother's age um, that we know about. So. Um, 
so and and that that relationship is kind of it's like kind of like S shaped, so it's low and, and and then really ramps up at 35, and then kind of flattens off at 45. But people don't really, but at, but at quite a high level, um, and I. Uh, but we don't know. I don't think of any particular endogenous uh, or exogenous factors other than maternal age that affect that. Um, one of the kind of conundrums is that. Um, is that the eggs that a woman has are all laid down before birth. They're all immature oocytes in the egg. Um, and so we're not, it's not quite clear, is, it, is, the, is, a, is a woman naturally using the better eggs first, or is there something that happens to the, uh, to the eggs you know, as the woman gets older? Uh, and it's not fully clear yet. Um, so, but, and, and then you're, and, and it is certainly the case that, so the, the common ones that we see at birth that create defects are, are chromosomes um, 21, 18, and 13. Um, they're all smaller chromosomes. And actually, if you look earlier at uh, earlier uh, miscarriages, you actually see other ones, the bigger chromosomes, because they have bigger effects and they're more damaging, and they almost never uh, uh, develop to birth. Great. Uh, you've you've also been very persistent. Mm. So I'm sorry that let's go to you. Uh, continuing the theme of um, ethics, um, <clears throat> it's increasingly companies are offering the service of analysing people's genome. Uh, what do we do when insurance companies start using this information? to determine what type of insurance you can get and even what premium levels are set. Uh, I'll hand this over to you guys, but the, in the British situation, it's very interesting. The insurance industry has self-regulated itself to say they won't use this information, but notice it's so, so, uh, self-regulated. And I'll hand this over to the Matt and Stuart and, and Anne. What, what should we do? about insurance companies using genetics? I'm not sure what we should do, but I'm aware that uh, some insurance companies are interested in this topic very much because they're worried. I can't remember what the phrase is that insurance companies use when the, they know less than the person themselves. Do you, do you yeah, if information asymmetry or yeah, something like that. Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. It's like one of these information asymmetry, something like that, where you, know, you yourself know more than the insurance company does about you know, your predicted lifespan, which is obviously you know, what, what a lot of them are interested in in life insurance. Um, and and they're, they're worried about people getting access to their polygenic scores, for instance, for something like for something like a, a disease, or um, you can have a polygenic score for lifespan as well. That's been that's been looked at. Um, so you know, you, some people have genetic variants that are associated with living longer, and, and, and you can you could get that. Um, and so actually, there, there's a bit of consternation, even though they're not uh, they're not necessarily going to use it, or, or perhaps because they're not going to use it, uh, uh, they're they're worried that that we will be able to find out our, ourselves and make. You know, make make decisions uh, that they that they want to make. And I think here, one of the things that's important is to emphasise this very very probabilistic nature. So it's much more important in the insurance company at the moment to know: Do you smoke? Yeah. How heavy are you? Did your father have a heart attack? Are you a man or a woman? These, these bits of information are much more useful to them. But as Stuart says, this might change and we have to decide. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it, it's certainly plausible in the future those same genetic predictors will get better uh, and they will start to get to a stage where, where insurance companies will be worried about that. Yeah. And I think in America they have the uh, Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act, I think. Yeah, GINA. 
Yeah. Uh, and only uh, good piece of legislation passed by President Bush. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and I think we should seriously consider whether we ought to have something similar in this country. I think you know, insurance is about socialising risk in many respects, and we, we as a society should decide that do we want to socialise that risk um, in terms of some people being able to pour a random deal on their genes than others. But yeah, this point about taking a family history uh, and, and, and obvious, and obvious uh, behavioural and um, lifestyle uh, choices is, 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 is a better predictor um, uh, but I think that will, yeah, that will change, and yeah. we need to continue. We need to continue to have these dialogues uh, and and interactions. Mm. Um, I, mean, I, I, I would hope what would happen is if the insurance industry, you know, made moves to stop self to, to, to top, stop its self-imposed moratorium on using genetic information, yeah. that th what would then happen would be that we would introduce legislation yeah. like Gina. Yeah. Just just a quick question: How many people here are an identical twin? Nobody. We need to calculate the probability of that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How many people know identical twins? Okay. Do you think those identical twins are truly identical? Are they the same person? Or are they different? No? Yeah, good shake. Describe in, in broad, why, why are you so confident that those two twins are different? Is it their personality? Is it how they cut their hair? Is it what, what, what make for you makes those two twins different? Could you give us a quick sketch without disclosing names and being nice? Yeah. Well, the one common feature is they both have red hair. But after that, their personalities are really quite different already at, at the age of 10 or 11. Um, and you can see traits developing in them, which you might call evil. You might. Escalated quickly. Shall we say antisocial? But theoretically, the environment is exactly the same. But can we really say that, for instance, if they go to different schools? It should be, it should be said, by the way, that. Um, uh, certainly in my, in my sort of realm of, of IQ tests, if you give the same person an IQ test, like a month, uh, the same IQ test a month apart, the correlation between their score, or you know, you give, you give a set of people uh, an IQ test and you give that same set of people an IQ test again, the correlation between the scores on that first occasion and the second occasion would be somewhere about 0.8. So correlations go from minus one to, to one and the correlation is, is, pretty, is pretty strong. Um, identical twins correlate at about 0.8 on the, on the IQ tests as well. So it's, it's almost as if you've given the, the same person the same test uh, twice. Um, uh, that's how close they are in their scores on, on, on IQ tests, on average. Though yeah. so I'm bringing up the identical twins because they do have, and again, there's a little asterisk here for, because of the differences in DNA mutations over time, but they do have identical genomes. And as you say, identical twins are definitely different people. They get different diseases as well. They're more likely to get the same disease. But it's not the case that they live in lockstep and, and get the same diseases or anything like that. And it's a very powerful way of understanding the limitations of using DNA is to think about identical twins and think less about how identical they are and more about how different they are. Right, more questions. Uh, one here. I'm going to brave going back to the epigenetics question. 
um, if I can. Uh, you, you said something about, <coughs> excuse me, the, um, the epigenetic changes are washed clean from one generation to the next. Um, and perhaps I've misunderstood epigenetics, but is there kind of research that shows like in, in Auschwitz survivors, the kind of the two generations down, sort of anxiety levels are higher, or are, I suppose my, my question is, are, are there the environmental changes like trauma or diet or smoking that do go down, that are seen um, in other generations? Um, and, and if so, how, how does that process work? And, and thirdly, yeah. is that epigenetics? Yeah. And I've got it completely wrong. I don't know. <laughs> so, so I'm going to move to um, animal studies to, to talk about that because, in fact, it's very the main the main mechanism of inheritance of any trait from one generation to another is a genetic one, of course. Um, and of course, there's so much genetic variability between people that it's actually very difficult to quantify effects that that might not be genetic. So um, um, the idea that, for example, um, um, you might have a diet, let's, let's, let's go away from, from stress and, 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 and mental health because actually those are very difficult experiments to do, very difficult studies to interpret. Um, and in general, in fact, in my view, the, the, the numbers of, of individuals that have been involved in these kinds of studies are too low to make firm conclusions. But if you look in animal studies where you have much more genetic homogeneity, uh, you can control the environment much better and you can impose an insult in a controlled fashion, you can then ask to what extent do, these, uh, do the traits that occur in response to these, we call them phenotypes, um, be, get transmitted from one generation to the next. And it is clear that there is some evidence that in fact, um, for example, an in utero undernutrition uh, exposure which results in a, a, a baby mouse that is born small. Uh, uh, actually, that will lead to a mouse that might get fat and diabetic later on, have an adult onset disease. And then you might ask the question, well, does that mouse, which is fed normally during its life, give rise to offspring that will be born small and get fat and diabetic? Um, and there is some evidence uh, in the literature, uh, also actually in the case of Valcroate exposures, um, during pregnancy in mice, that you do have um, phenotypes that are recapitulated from one generation to the next, not for very many generations, um, as, as far as the studies have gone so far, uh, and sometimes not, in, not so extreme in subsequent generations as you see in earlier generations. So there is an idea that there's something going on that may be not genetic. In my view, we do not know the mechanism of this at all. And it's a very, very um, important question. Um, and, and the reason why it's so difficult is because you do need to rule out genetic, uh, genetic effects in these kinds of experiments, even with inbred strains of mice, that you don't have a, a mutation occurring that is resulting in these effects. And uh, you need to have good numbers, you need to have highly controlled experiments, and you need to comprehensively analyze a large number of things. Basically, you don't know what to look for, you don't know when to look for it, and you don't know where to look. And so these are the studies that are, are, are beginning to be done properly now, um, and, uh, and in my view, animal models are the best way to do this before we really start, um, um, so that we can generate some hypotheses that will allow us to explore these kinds of questions in, in, in human populations. Yeah, and I think, so the, there's two kind of meta comments here. Firstly. Your, your understanding of epigenetics here, it's actually a, a, a word that we use for a variety of things, and that 
even scientists will use the word epigenetics and confuse each other about what they're talking about. So that is, uh, so don't feel bad for that. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is that it's actually the, for many of these studies which have happened in humans, which are observational, so you don't do experiments like this on humans, so you have to rely on these observational things. The simpler e explanation is a behavioral change which has been passed down through the generations through behavioral change, through, through cultural transmission. And that simpler explanation is, has at least an equal footing and, and probably a much, is a much easier way to explain much of this data than, than a, complicated, a more complicated molecular mechanism. So this is why Anne is such a leader in this field, because she does the incredibly careful experiment She's kind of made a name for herself for making negative results of <laughs> uh, publishing incredibly careful papers that says this does not happen except in these very, very rare circumstances. But, um, but I think the point that you make is a very important one. Most people don't appreciate that the epigenome is erased from one generation to the next, actually. Um, um, so you might ask, well, is all the epigenome erased from one generation to the next? Uh, maybe there are some sequences that are refractory to this and can be transmitted across generations. Um, and that was actually how I got into this field because I worked on a, on, a, on a process called genomic imprinting where an epigenetic mark that's set down in one generation is actually retained, it, it's actually set, set, set up in the eggs and the sperms of, one, uh, of the parents and is maintained in the offspring. It's not erased. Uh, and it does that for one generation. It's then subsequently erased in the cells that give rise to the eggs and sperms. But you can actually get a heritable epigenetic mark from one generation to the next in a small subset of genes. That is a highly, highly regulated process. We know how that works. We know how these regions, what makes these regions resistant to these erasure events. And it, they're controlled by special proteins that put the DNA back, the methylation back on the DNA and make sure that it doesn't get erased. It's a highly, um, a highly sophisticated, highly regulated process that is targeted to particular regions of the genome. So the rest of the genome doesn't do this. There's one other type of sequence that seems to be uh, refractory to, to reprogramming um, from one generation to the next, and that's these repeat sequences that I was talking about. Now, it's so important for the epigenetic modifications to shut down these sequences that have the potential to move around and cause mutations, that in fact they don't want, to, that your genome doesn't want to erase those from one generation to the next because you have the potential in a very early embryo for, to activate these things and that could cause problems. So some of these, in fact most of these sequences, many of these sequences, in fact we don't exactly know how many because it repeats. I love, I love, I love the precision. Repeats <laughs> 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 are very difficult to work with but, um, but we do know that some repetitive sequences are also, also carry their repressed epigene repressive epigenetic marks from one generation uh, uh, to the next. Uh, now whether those have the potential to confer a heritable change that affects phenotype, affects a trait, I think you know, we're a long way to go before yeah. we're anywhere near understanding. And, and so there is a small chance that these molecular things might happen and is one of the people investigating it. But in, again, going back to the bigger human things, we're actually relatively co confident that most of what we see can't be due to these types of 
uh, events. And even these cases of the Dutch famine in the war and the Austrian survivors, there are sort of easier explanations for the data than this epigenetic one. And there are easier explanations of how we got the results as well, yeah. right? Because lots of areas, in recent years, many areas of science, maybe all areas of science, uh, we've become much more aware that scientists are extremely biased in favor of certain results and are not publishing negative results. You've uh, seen a lot of published lots of negative results. And it's an extremely important thing that when you do an experiment and it doesn't turn out the way you want, is that the, you, you still publish it. And I, I get the impression that the, the, the area of epigenetics uh, or this kind of transgenerational uh, epigenetic inheritance um, has quite a lot of um, uh, uh, hype and a lot of, because uh, it, it apparently you know, will explain lots of, lots of problems and so on. And scientists have been irresponsible with the sorts of things they've published and the sorts of things they've said and the sort of very wide conclusions they've drawn on the basis of what are, what are often you know, analyses where maybe they've, you know, they've just dropped out participants that were not uh, necessarily showing the effect or they've not published all, this, all the studies that they've done. And, and you know, there's lots of different ways that science can become uh, biased. In I, I, think, I think that's very harsh, actually. I think, these, I, think I have to say these are very, very difficult experiments to do. And I think you know, it's easy to misinterpret uh, or not conduct a comprehensive enough study. It's easy to not do the right controls. It's easy to, to not phenotype your individuals properly. There's all kinds of reasons sure. why, yeah, so why, uh, why, um, why um, and, and that in fact, you know, you have, to, you, have to sequence, you have to sequence genomes before you, and ask genetic questions before you answer I mean, epi epigenetic questions. And just, I think just to be clear, I'm not accusing people of, mm. uh, of deliberately coming up with these things. It's, it's that they're, they're unconsciously biased towards finding results, and that's something that we've shown in loads mm. of areas of science now. Yeah, no, they're no, unconsciously no. biased towards positive results and, 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 and so on, um, and on the basis of quite weak theoretical uh, areas, and, and that, I feel like what you were saying there is that mm -hmm. the theory is extremely weak in this case. Yeah. Um, in psychology, we have this a huge amount, is that we have these really weak theories, and then all these results that, that, get, that appear, and then people do proper replication attempts of them later, and the, and the, and the, the, mm -hmm. the, the studies fall to bits. Um, but it's not because of deliberate fraud or misconduct or anything, it's just because scientists are humans, and, and they, they, they're attracted to, to uh, positive Oh, there are good yeah. scientists and there are bad Indeed, scientists. Indeed, quite so, quite so. So we only have good scientists here, and with that <laughs> thought, I'm going to take one more question. Uh, sorry, look at that. All the hands have gone up, but I'm going to go down here because it's easier. Uh, two parts to this. Is dopamine and serotonin in the brain, has that got a genetic base, and how is that affecting how we process language? Because that could be making us more intelligent or mentally ill or... So, so, I mean, so uh, I think uh, pretty much every chemical we can imagine in the brain will have some kind of um, genetic contribution to it. I mean, there are certain disorders, um, genetic disorders, where, where there are kind of defects in the, in the metabolic pathways that make and break down dopamine and serotonin. Um, and so, but, but they are very rare disorders. It's much more like there's, there's subtle differences between it. Um, yeah. No, I have no, no doubt to that. No, right. So you have been very patient. I hope, uh, why don't you give uh, these lovely scientists a round of applause. Uh, can I just congratulate you all on some great questions? And I am very, very sorry that we didn't get around to all the hands that were up. Um, so uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.